Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. We have the 27th episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into a life journey that may be quite different than yours. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that level the playing field and help everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, learn, struggle, work, and live in our world. I am in awe of my esteemed guest today, considered one of the world's foremost experts on healthcare economics and financing, regularly advising government and non-governmental organizations. Professor of Economics Emeritus at the Harvard Global Health Institute, he is a leading global expert in universal health insurance, which he studied for more than 40 years and has designed health system reforms and universal health insurance programs for countries including the US, Taiwan, China, Colombia, Poland, Vietnam, Hong Kong, Sweden, Cyprus, Uganda, and most recently, Malaysia and South Africa. His research in developing nations focuses on sustainable healthcare financing for the poor rural population. With UNICEF support, he reformed the design of China's health insurance benefits for 900 million rural residents and covered prevention and primary care. Currently, with help from the Gates Foundation, he's launched a large-scale 600,000-person social test on models to improve financing and delivery of basic health care for China's 350 million low-income rural residents. His analytical framework to diagnose successes and failures of national health systems has shaped how we conceptualize them and been used extensively to reform health systems globally. I could go on and on. Named the man of the year in medicine in 1989 for developing a new payment method, he's also been elected to the Institute of Medicine and the U.S. National Academy of Science. He's published more than 180 papers and several books and served as advisor to three U.S. presidents, the U.S. Congress, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, World Health Organization, and International Labor Organization. I am humbled to welcome from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Professor William Shao. Professor Bill, what an honor to be speaking with you on Our Voices. It's my honor to appear on your program, Molly. And what I would like to do is uh, use the time to share my life journey how a refugee from China traversed through the United States social economic as well as the racial prejudice environment to do or attain what I was able to do. I came to the United States at the age 12, with the only intention to stay here for two years when my father accepted a job as advisor 
to the Chinese delegation to the UN from the nationalist government. So we left all our belongings in China, actually, and with, with the intention of a short stay. However, events overtook, overtook our plan. My father died unexpectedly with a, you can call it a medical accident because they did, treated him incorrectly. And my mother who was always a fragile woman had to then try to support the family because my father was, all, was a lifetime teacher. And uh, as you know, during the war years, Chinese professors were poorly paid. So my mother went out to work. Within a year, she came down with a third stage TB. So at the age of 13, I lost both my father and mother. My mother was in the TB sanitarium for eight years while I grew up. This is a story I want to tell you. It's because without money, without parents, can you still survive? At that time, there was a strong discrimination against the Blacks as well as Asians. And so how we had to survive. Basically, we were advised by neighbors, kind neighbors, white people, who told us, my siblings and I, I had, uh, there are four of us, the oldest one was, uh, still was in China. The one who was here, the oldest one was 15 years old. We went out, we were advised, why don't you go out and find jobs? So I delivered newspaper in the morning. That required me to get up five o'clock, but I hate that. I couldn't get up, but if you have to, you do anyway. And then deliver grocery after school. This is how I and my siblings supported ourselves while my mother was isolated in the TB sanitarium. My lifetime in growing up illustrates the, the good side of the United States and the bad side of the United States. Good side is United States gave a family without parents and without money a chance actually to live. And my oldest sister came later from China. And then once she was here, we had an anchor, you might say. But nevertheless, we all worked. 
And so U.S. is a land of opportunity for immigrants. The negative side was the racial discrimination. The taunting, people calling me chink, or people walk by me say, without knowing me on the subway even, say, go back where you came from. Well, as a child, I didn't understand what caused that. Now, of course, later on, we were told we have to study science if we want a decent job because all the jobs were close to Asian Americans, except engineering and science field. This only occurred after Sputnik was fired by Russians in 1957. Nevertheless, the United States gave me the opportunity to grow and then went to not a famous college, and I did not do well. I worked 40 hours a week during the college to earn my way. Although I had a scholarship for tuition, I had to earn my living expenses. <clears throat> but also I had to major in physics which is not a subject I'm good at. I don't have that imagination. I do not have that kind of abstract thinking. Put everything into a mathematical formula. I barely graduated from college with just a passing grade from, I call, another very good college. But again, opportunity opened up to use what I learned in mathematics. Because when you major in physics, you have to take a lot of math. I became an actuary working for an insurance company. I will bet most of you do not know what is an actuary. <laughs> There's a joke about actuaries in America. And that joke is that an actuary is someone who doesn't have the personality to become an accountant. So basically, actuaries are known as nerds mathematical nerves. We use mathematical and statistical methods to forecast the future financial risks and set the premiums for life insurance, health insurance, car insurance, pensions, and so forth. Well, to get into this why, how did I get into this field? That's because 
you can become an actuary by passing 10 nationwide examinations. The exams are graded anonymously. They don't know your name. You are only a number. They don't know your racial background or gender. So only based on what you learned, what you know, that you demonstrate through examination held nationwide, and then they decide you pass or fail. It's a very objective, unbiased way to pick out people who have some specialized knowledge. Well, that's a route I followed. I was very fortunate to pass my exam. As I told you, I was not a good student. But there's one thing stabilizes a young man whose minds are not so well disciplined. That is Mary, a very capable and supportive spouse. Mm -hmm. My wife encouraged me and stabilized my life. And then I took the actual exams and very lucky I passed all of them, became a so-called fellow society of actuaries. That put you automatically on the corporate leadership role. However, I found I was not that happy. I was working for a life insurance company called Connecticut General Life Insurance Company, a very good company, well run. And its motto is, we are not trying to make the most profit. Our first priority is to serve our customers. And then automatically we will make profit because by word of mouth, satisfied customers will pass the word about the company. So, I worked for such a good company and was a corporal officer, but I was not happy. Here's now I want to tell you something about you who came from a different culture. Our previous old culture give us the value, the beliefs, and the attitudes on what is important and shapes what you think are the most valuable thing to do in your life. The Chinese tradition is the highest calling a person can have is going to the government through the empirical examination, 
during the eras of Qing Dynasty and other dynasties. Once I passed the actual exams, I decided, although I work for a wonderful company, I think I'd like to go work for the US government. This is how my value comes from the Chinese culture shaped me. And I will urge all the immigrants, listen to this, ask yourself this question, what are the values, attitudes, and beliefs that you carry from your tradition, your culture that shapes your life? Well, I went into the government and I found, again, life opened up an opportunity I never thought I would have. And that is I had to testify before US Congress. That it was because my boss, the chief actuary of the United States was fired by the president because he disagreed with the president's policy. So they were looking for a neophyte, a young guy who doesn't know politics, but who knows how to do the technical work to do the act, to be the acting person while they're searching for a capable new chief actuary of the United States. In that role as acting chief actuary, I had to actually testified before congressional committees. Congressmen and senators asked tough questions. Questions to me came from, I call it left of the field. In other words, it's not even in my vision scope. For example, it's the actress job to say, okay, the social security may have a deficit in 10 years. So we have to actually now try to do something and the Senator may have proposed, let's de delay the retirement age by a year. So that will save money. How much money would that save? That's the actuary's job to produce such an estimate. How much longer than the Social Security program will be financially sound? Again, the actuaries have to answer. But the next question is, how would that impact on the US employment rate. I sat right front array of cameras in the witness table and say, well, what? Yeah, okay, 
you delay the retirement age, some people are going to work longer. There may be fewer jobs for a while. I said, sorry, Senator, I don't have the answer, but I promise I will supply the refund now. Next question from a Senator. How would I impact on the inflation of the United States? Next question. How would I impact on the foreign trade and the balance of trade of the United States? Each one of those questions make me want to draw a hole on the floor and jump into it rather than face the TV cameras and all the senators and say, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer. I come back later. This was my time of awakening, realized how much, how limited is my knowledge. I know some technical answers, but I do not know the interconnection between, let's say, the social security program with the rest of the economy or with the rest of the society. So at the age 35, I decided I'm going back to graduate school. By that time, I have two children and a wife, of course. Mm -hmm. And I went back to graduate school to study economics. I'm telling you, sharing my experience is to show knowledge has no limit. And I was fortunate in my mid thirties years old, discover the joy of learning. I find I discover new world. Well, as had to support myself through graduate school with a family. I will not belabor with you with that episode. But then I want to tell you, I found healthcare. I found partly because my value system and beliefs that Chinese tradition and culture gave me that's an area that healthcare touches everybody's life. Because every one of us may have some illness or we may actually have some pain. As also we do get old. And as we get old, we have more sicknesses. If I can do something to make healthcare better for everyone, that gave me the greatest sense of satisfaction. That's how I got into healthcare. 
I never thought I would be a teacher or researcher because I was not a good student in high school since I came to the United States to college because I did not know English. So the way to escape, I read Chinese comics, comics books or Chinese uh, novels. So I did not really receive good education in high school to learn how to write. But then I discovered, nevertheless, Harvard offered me a professorship position. I was taken back by it. I struggled and say, being a professor and a researcher, I have to write. I have to do research and write up the research for publication. And that's not my strength. However, then I thought, can I learn how to write better? Well, I thought I will ask a graduate student to teach me. Well, she taught me something, but still good writing requires much more than just people teach you some rules. Nevertheless, I found my desire to learn new things overcome my self-doubt about whether I actually can survive in the academic world. That sense, though, of self-confidence come from, if I fail in academic world, United States will have another job opportunity for me somewhere. That again, I think, is the strength of the United States. So as the Asian American, if you are the first generation immigrant, you might even be handicapped by your ability to speak and write English. And you can tell my speaking, English speaking ability is not that good either. I mispronounce words and I sometimes use the wrong verbs. However, in my old age, I can tell you, people are looking for your ideas, not picking on your grammar or your pronunciation. If you have good ideas, good knowledge, that's more important. How do you acquire that knowledge and that um, 
ideas, innovative ideas that I would emphasize again is through learning and with the attitude as the Chinese all saying, that means there's no limit to learning new knowledge. So now how did I get into the work around the world? I like to say, again, chance in life plays a major role in my life. I came from China mainland. I did not have connections, nor did I attend school in Taiwan. But by a, a very remote chance, somebody recommended to Taiwan's government that if you are trying to restructure, reform your health system, and that time that's what Taiwan wants to do in the late 1980s. Why don't you invite Bill Shaw to come back and just give you some thought. I did not know these high ranking officials or the academics in Taiwan, but it's just somebody who read my writing, maybe suggested that. I went back to Taiwan again from circumstances, Taiwan decided to invite somebody from outside Taiwan to come back and lead a task force to design new healthcare system for the 21st century for Taiwan. Why? That's because the leading experts in Taiwan may be actually disagreeing with each other, may compete with each other. As well, they know the local conditions so well, they cannot rise above and see the big picture and see the future. Well, I was fortunate by random chance, I was invited back to Taiwan to lead this task force. We designed the program and Taiwan's president Li Denghui liked it. And he that politically got the plan adopted, which now have served Taiwan for 27 years. And 80% of Taiwanese believe supported and said this is a good program. From there, then, once you have a, some track record, then other countries begin to invite me. That's how I got into international work. It's by, and the work I've been doing then 
is to take the academic knowledge and transform it, translate it into something practical and real, into a country's condition, as well as make it acceptable politically. Let me just make clear, I'm not always successful. The politics often would actually block what you can recommend rationally and good for the society. However, now I can tell you, there were nine countries or societies invited me in my, my lifetime to redesign their healthcare system. Five of them, not all nine, only five, accepted and passed legislation or passed and or adopt policies like in China. To do that, let me also tell you, it takes patience because new ideas, fresh ideas are not that easily accepted by everyone, particularly politicians political leaders who are usually dealing with daily crisis, you have to be able to actually present your ideas clearly, interestingly, and concisely, and, that, and let that idea germinate in their minds. Then they will come back to you for more details and also really further education and so forth. So the other recommendation I have for you is if you want to make a major difference by changing the policy of any nation, you have to have the patience On the other hand, I return back to the theme of joy of learning. In every country I work closely with, I find such a joy. I learn new things. I found there's so much I don't know. The most recent one is California. The governor of California, Gavin Newsom, appointed me uh, commission to design a Medicare for all plan for California. I thought I know a great deal about Medicare for all, which is a single pair model of healthcare. And I have designed that for other countries and also for the state of Vermont. But California taught me California has special conditions, different racial mix, different power structures, 
different economic considerations. I was a student on the commission. So if you are interested, the commission did not go very far, but it moved California, I would say, 30% forward, not even 80% or 70%, but few steps forward. So you can make a contribution throughout your lifetime. If your mind is on, say, I want to use my knowledge to improve the lives of everyone, like in healthcare or education. So, but here I like to end by saying, I like to leave you with a, what I drives me and give me satisfaction is learning. And this world is so interesting and so complex. There's no end to our learning. Thank you. Back to you, Molly. Oh, thank you, Professor Bill. I had tears at one point. I was very moved um, by your journey and all that you have persevered through and your unshakability, I guess is what I would say. It's just this long game, the way to see the upside, to not be deterred when it doesn't go well. Um, that's It just shows how grounded you are as a a human being, which I understand when you have a youth the way you did, it really probably wasn't much of an option. So thank you, thank you for for sharing that. The um when you kind of and you mentioned that you're um on the Cape now, you've got your family there. When you sit back and look up and think that this is me, my life and what I've done, what comes to you? Do you pinch yourself? Do you just not really think twice about it? When I look up in the sky and think of my life, I consider I, I'm a Christian, so I believe in God. I thank God for the blessings I received. My family did not intend to migrate to the United States. And uh, that happened by chance. I never knew what the actuarial science was. I stumbled into it because the discrimination against Asian Americans on jobs and also what kind of job can I find where I may be able to overcome that discrimination. All these were not pre-planned. So I can, I often give to my students this advice. I said, life actually is unpredictable. 2,500 years ago, the Chinese philosophers actually put out a basic idea called Yi Jing. English translate I change. It says 
in life, there are great deal of uncertainty and unknown. You should actually keep that in mind, I was tell myself that a door could close, but a window could open. And that is what I think about the number of windows open to me in my lifetime unexpectedly. And I call that the blessing of God. Oh, I love that metaphor and how you have uh, seen through, opened up and gone through so many windows. I uh, I would love, and you know, I, I, I talked briefly with you specifically about the healthcare. I, you know, I look at our system in America, which seems tied to, if you have a good company and a big company, you have a good plan. Um, so, so could you share with us, you know, what, what do you think a path forward could be to help improve um, our healthcare access and you know, our, our tremendous costs. It's super expensive. And I just, I know it's a huge topic, but just a few thoughts for, for listeners. I um, want yeah. thank you for asking me that question. I have said openly and written that United States has a broken healthcare system. What do I mean by broken? It's really originally was designed incorrectly. You rely on the so-called market, the free market to supply healthcare, health insurance to people. The obvious thing then is low-income people cannot afford to buy health insurance. Elderly and sick people, even they want to buy health insurance, they cannot do it because health insurance companies know they are high risk. They will not insure you. And then when you pay doctors or hospitals on fever service basis, they wait until you're sick, come to them, then they give you tests, examine you, give you treatment, then they can charge you. They don't try to prevent you, give you preventive medicine to keep you healthy because then you will come to them less. And then, you and I, as non-medical medical trained pers pers people, we do not know medicine. We go to a doctor or nurse practitioners because they have specialized knowledge. We rely on them to, to try to do the best for the patient. However, our system says, no, your income depends on how many patients come to you. And meanwhile, the patients often actually mistakenly think the higher the price people charge, just like you buy a luxury good, that good must be better. So the race among doctors 
sometimes is who can charge higher prices. That fortunately been curbed in the United States. But there was a period, the competition is who can charge higher prices for the same service that give a message to the patients, I'm better doctor. So that's what I mean by it's a broken system. The good news is other countries actually designed and developed and tested a much better system is called single payer system, which has been popularized by Senator Sanders during the last election cycle. I will tell you what will happen in the United States if the United States transform and reform its healthcare system to a single payer system. First, every American, including if we choose to include all the undocumented immigrants, can be insured under comprehensive benefits. It's, we can afford it. Everyone be treated equally. We can improve the supply of clinics and doctors in the underserved areas. Meanwhile, we can save every American on average $1,000 from their health spending. You will say, oh, Bill Shaw, you're crazy. How could you save money and give more? That I want to leave the message to you. This broken system is wasteful. It's inefficient. It's inequitable. However, we have difficulty reforming it. It's because we build up many, many groups that get profits from the system, like pharmaceutical industries, like many health insurance companies. However, I'd like to leave you on optimistic note. I believe within a decade, American people already, 73% of American people being polled said they support the reform to adopt a single payer system. You need the big business to come along and say, I also support it. And big business found today, the health insurance premium cost them so much money that they actually have to cut back the cash wages to their workers so they can pay for the health insurance premium for their workers. Doctors began to say, this system is broken. And I rather, because I'm dedicated to cure 
people's illness and relieve their suffering, I'd rather go to one that would serve that purpose. So I believe in 10 years, you will see every presidential election, there's going to be more and more heated debate on this issue. And then maybe two presidential election from now or three cycles from now, the United States will say, that's enough. And we will adopt a major reform, adopt a form of single payer system. That's what I think the United States will happen. Here, here, I'm gonna encourage listeners, you work for companies. I think the idea of where there's a will, there's a way. And, and it's it, this is something that we can do, um, Professor, with your knowledge and your experience, you know, you can show the way. And this political will uh, takes stepping back and saying, what really does serve the whole? And, and how do we create transparency for where um, profits perhaps are uh, taking over, where you know, I've had doctors say it's a disease care system. And so preventative and how do we keep people healthy and not get to illness? Uh, and I think if people could just get more upset about it and then uh, create company and political will, I hope that we get there faster than the 10 years. That would really be my dream. So, um, well, as we wrap here, I guess I'd like to just kind of take it back to you personally and the and the next generation. And I'm I'm curious, you think of the grandkids you have and, you know, you have taken so um, you've seized opportunity, you know, when it's come to you. What do you wish for your grandkids? I wish my grandchildren have an environment where the really the climate change and the crisis got under control. To me, that's one. Second, the chance of a nuclear war get reduced. The tension between US and China is unhealthy today. And it's escalating rather than reducing. Each one, offers, I say, misinformation, including the United States offers misinformation or exaggerated information to say China is a threat. And meanwhile, China exaggerated United States a threat to China's future. We need to have a better understanding between the Chinese and American people and the leaders to maintain world peace. Third, US economic system has to change. The economic system has tilted for the wealthy to the capitalists. That's what creates this disparity in income. That cannot persist. You will create social tension, eventually, possibly political explosion. 
part of the current tension in the so-called polarizing in America is partly due to the inequities between different classes as well as different races and different regions. The United States needs to understand, yes, a free market has many advantages, but also have many major shortcomings we have learned through history. We have to actually put the parameters like a tennis game, we have to draw where's the boundary, where's the net, what is the scores we're going to keep, how the private industries operating in a market that's actually set with rational rules like a tennis game so you can actually give a fair chance to everyone. Right now, we have gone too far with so-called neoliberalism that since 1970s, 80s promulgated the United States, it took us too far down the road. That's what I wish for my grandchildren. And we wish that for the world, Professor Bill, your humility, wisdom, and impact are remarkable. So thank you for opening up and giving us a chance to learn about and from you and your work. Uh, I hope your work takes hold sooner than later, and it's uh, going to make and has made a big difference in our world. So I want to thank you for being part of the solution, helping all of us to be safe, seen, and heard and our true and very best selves. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to appear on your program. We shall okay. meet soon, I hope. I hope very, very soon. Okay. You, you take good care. Bye. Uh, my thought for the week from Professor Bill, there's no limit to learning new knowledge. Discover the joy of learning. And that is a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Professor Shao's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? 
please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 